If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast all in one place. They have tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app on Apple or Android or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Now back to the good part. Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast with my partner, Brian Siegel. I'm Curtis Wilson. Brian, go ahead. Do it. Before we start, do it. I need to see it. I need to see it. Surrender Cobra, man. Uh, yeah, your, your boy Curtis here is putting a little bit of a beat down on me right now. Um, not, not confirmed yet, but uh, I'm in a position where um, – Essentially, his next three players have to score absolutely nothing for me to win. So, it ain't happening. I'm taking the Yale. I'll own it. It's it's all good. I, I'm I'm it's it hasn't been my year. Injuries have crushed me. Guys on the COVID list have crushed me. It just you're hasn't off been championship. You know your your guys aren't as focused. Yeah, you know, yeah. So last year you took home everything. You were what eleven. And two in the regular season, eleven and two. Uh, and yeah, I, I crushed the regular season and then smoked the playoffs. It wasn't even he close smoked. in the playoffs. I think you won by thirty both games last year in the playoffs for fantasy. I don't like it. Wasn't like a game. It wasn't like Brian was sitting here on pins and needles on a Monday night. It was like, I'm yeah, kidding. I had an absolute squad last year and nobody was really injured much. So, no, nope, not many injuries. That helps. <laughs> you, you had a good balance. You took a few risks here and there. You know, the way you play fantasy, like we all should. But, uh, you know, I, I got to just throw that in there. We had That's both okay. of our teams had a good day. Both teams winning. Your Colts put a smackdown on the Bills. I mean. Yeah, that was that was big. Uh, Jonathan Taylor for MVP, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go ahead man, and look <laughs> I mean, four more touchdowns today, right? Five. Five. He got a fifth. Yeah. <laughs> so fifth, you guys are now right outside the wild card. The Niners, and, and he he went for over two hundred all purpose, uh, r- rushing and receiving. He's really good. And with the with the Titans losing, y'all y'all inch up in the division. Yeah, I mean the only downside is that we got to be a full game ahead of them to actually take the division. Um, it's not it's no tiebreaker. We don't own the. Uh, the advantage there. So we got to be a full game ahead of them. So that's the downside. But the upside is we just got a game closer to that. It's true. And in the next few weeks, they've got Patriots, Jaguars, Steelers, 49ers. Eh, they've got like a three and two record. 
potentially out of that. And then y'all got, let's see, the Buccaneers next week, Texans, Patriots, Cardinals. Y'all got a rougher path to get there. Especially if, uh, you know, Kyler and the boys get, get healthy there. Um, and they, they ended up playing well today, even, even without Murray. Uh, they the played game, so. It it shows you the importance in any division in football of having a good backup quarterback, right? Yeah, like someone you can depend on. I mean, well, well, Colt's solid, but he he's still even you know getting a little bit older. He still can move a little bit, so he still can run most more or less the full complement of that offense. Yeah, um, and and get things done. So uh, that's helped them and. You know, you get a you get a veteran like that that still takes care of the football, but still can do everything you need uh, in that offense. Um, that's what's big for them. It's very true, man. It's very true, and it's again, it just shows you the importance of it. Um, again, all levels of football, and we get to talk about it some tonight. We dive into the Hokies here, um, and let, let's just dive into it, Brian. Let's start. You know, uh, a thirty-eight. 26 loss, right? My mind didn't fool me a T. And 38-26, I got that wrote down here because I, I did not – maybe it was just having a busy day and it was a late night. It was a loss. I didn't stay up and, like, fever over it and read a million posts. It ended. Had some family in town. Say goodnight to them. Went to bed. Fell asleep. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of this is because we know what's coming next. Yeah. So we're not we're not necessarily sweating the the outcomes at this point. We more or less want to see this team play hard, play play as good as they can uh, to yeah. close this out, and hopefully get a game or two in the in the win column as they go about that um, to to really kind of bring things home on a, on a positive note, but. You know, I think the expectations are kids oh, play hard and, and and see what happens. So we, we at least got part of that out of the equation, and I like some of the things I I saw from JC from a leadership standpoint. Again, this isn't something he's doing long term, nope. um, but I like I like the the fact that he was out there, you know, taking taking some some chances, um, putting 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 the guys in in calculated risk situations to to get back in the ball game once they fell behind early. And they did. The onside kick is probably what Brian's really talking about the biggest. It was a great play at the time. It worked. It pulled us right back in the ball game. Um, again, calculated risk. I know some people saying they thought the defense wasn't playing hard. I didn't see that. I felt like the defense was playing hard. I think they made some really critical mistakes, um, but it wasn't for lack of effort. So I, I did not see a team quit last night. Um, that could potentially happen when you had what happened this week. JC, again, you said it, calculated risks, made it. You know, the two-point conversion, I know it was an argument last night, several places, why are we going for two? I was okay with it where where you had the momentum. The play call was less to be desired. <laughs> Wish we would have yeah, liked b- Bigger issue with the play call than the decision there. Um, we were late enough in the game. Uh, at that point, I don't have a big problem chasing points there, um, just because you do 
you get it down to a field goal game versus uh, a touchdown game. Um, it, it, it sets yourself up there. So I don't have a problem with that necessarily. Um, nope, none. None with it. Um, and again, him and the presser afterwards, I didn't get to see everything. Saw some quote, took full responsibility, said no asterisks on this. We lost the game. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of what you want to hear. We lost the game. Nothing special about it. It was my duty to go out there and win the game, and we lost. Yep. So, you know, we've already felt better about the – if anybody watched the pressure on Thursday, we already talked about the injury thing. AC was quickly very open and upfront about what happened, um, about what's going on, especially with Trey. Um, not shadow games or I don't know what's happening. You knew what was happening. All you had to do is we'll, just – We'll see Saturday. Yeah. It we'll was, see Saturday. It was, this is what's going on. This is why he's doing it. This is what's this is what what it is, and then we're gonna keep it moving. So we're gonna um, see be more interesting to see Monday, which we'll definitely be watching that, especially with what you know what what transpired with Trey. But let, let's flip it, Brian. Let's start with the defense because the defense had a blunders worth of stuff. It was yeah, it, it, it was a, probably probably one of their worst outings in a while. Probably since. Oh, well, Syracuse. Probably Syracuse. Yeah, and Sar- but Syracuse was more of a, you know, death by a thousand cuts after a while. Uh, whereas, you know, this seemed like, like they, it seemed like they wore down. This, they were down from the get go. Yeah. They got, they got their, they got their dicks kicked in the dirt early. And then it took them a long time to, to get out there. And, the, and, by the time they finally rallied, the offense was doing a little bit, but it looked like it was too little too late, and then a couple more big plays happened to kind of cap things off. I'm writing that one down here, Brian. Dicks kicked in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, Put it on a T-shirt. Yeah, I'm, 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 we're going to do something with that. Well, can, can I say this? I'm going to go back to Wednesday night, dude. And your version, which you were the catalyst for, Brian's usually the catalyst for the versions just because of his background and playing and everything. I threw my thoughts in there, but you crushed it. I tipped the cap. Everything you said that we needed to do, the things we didn't do good, it absolutely cost us a game. We'll start with the one thing we did do good, though. And I'm going to ask you for a grade. Let's start with gap integrity, Brian. I mean, the rush defense – I know this wasn't really a good Miami rushing team, only averaging about 135 yards a game, and we completely snuffed it out. You know, 57 yards on 26 carries. What did you see? What are you grading? I guess essentially the front seven and the team as a whole for gap integrity. Yeah, this is probably one of their better games overall. Um, I'm going to give them – I'd say it's B-plus, A-minus range. And I'm going to give a big shout-out to Keyshawn Artis, who – was a big part of why we were able to kind of keep some of those potential first downs and not, and really one that should have been a no first down that turned into one on that, uh, that, that fourth down um, that got spotted a, a full half yard off. It, like it, it should, it, should, it wasn't even close. It was, it was um, a terrible spot <laughs> and it was reviewed. And what they even better come out and said today the, there was this perfect angle you could see where the ball was like if you stopped it like this is where the line is this is where the ball is and yeah. they put the ball on the line 
And right. I get they can't like for whatever reason it has to be a, a a full speed look when they look at it whatever. But I just I don't I don't get that. But again, let, let's get back to what we're talking about here. So gap integrity uh, again. Keyshawn Artis was was really the uh, the the big difference here. Uh, he played a majority of the snaps out there, and he really did a good job of stepping up in the gap, uh, giving a hard shoulder. Um, really not letting the uh the point of contact drive him back anymore so where wherever he was getting the stick that's where the tackle was made and i think that's the difference between some of our other linebackers is that when he hits you you go down it's true he 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 does bring the thunder and he brings the thunder but he also has pretty good form when he yeah. thunders it's form it's not i'm going to you see a lot of guys they bring the thunder and they're not essentially rapping he does um when when he hits he's still under control and i think that's, that's awesome. a lot a lot of players struggle with either being bringing the bringing the lumber or forming up and being under control of the tackle mm-hmm. and he does a good job of kind of finding that balance where he can still uh you know bring a pop but but not really put himself in a bad position yeah, and I'm going to say this, and I know some people are going to scream, well, they did all this other stuff better. They won the game. But here's the issue. The reason we had that chance in the second half is they couldn't establish a run. They couldn't establish a run at all. Compared to this game could have been pit, right, where we had no shot because the gap integrity sucked. And they started running the ball at will, taking long drives, even if they didn't score – they they break the they break the forty punt it deep and we weren't doing anything offensively that game, so so what what I'd ask people to do is go back think about the game. If this isn't happening decent, we don't even have a fighting chance. Now well, the the rain starts coming down. They can't quite sling it around as much as they want to, and they couldn't run the ball. So no. and that and that that enabled us to get some some plays on offense and get down the field a couple times. Um, have the big onside kick there. I mean, there were several things in there where that helped us really get back into that game because it really could have went far south uh, been really ugly. If, if we were struggling in both phases there. So uh, kudos to the uh, the defensive line and the linebackers. Like I said, in particular, shout out to Keyshawn Artis, uh, probably my player of the game on defense. Um, not, nothing really negative to say about his play. And like I said, I think overall – uh, front seven did a decent job. Um, it's the secondary where, <laughs> well, unfortunately, things started falling apart. Well, yeah. The other thing you said, Brian, was we have to limit the big plays. And, okay, we gave up two touchdowns over 50 yards, not one but two. Harley's 55, Smith's 75, literally one play after we score a touchdown. They take it right back to where it was. Then you had Rambo had a 39-yarder. George had a 32-yarder. Rambo lit us up all game seven for 116. We talked about him. We talked about how highly coveted he was, how he had solid numbers at Oklahoma. He went over 1,000 this weekend, um, definitely making making himself some money this year. And then Van Dyke, 375, three touchdowns. Um, Brian, let's hear A, your grade, and then – what exactly was happening? I mean, it's got to be an F, right? I mean, you can't give up that many big plays and yeah. and, and get a passing grade. And it was a lot of things. Um, 
number one, uh, probably the worst game of Jermaine Waller's career. Yep. Um, and it was a bad, he had a very bad first half and he only had an okay second half. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what was going on. Um, but it, it was, it was little things and big things. It, it, it was like some, some of it looked like effort. Some of it looked like technique. Some would just look like he's, you know, he just got beat. Like the, the, it was kind of a little bit of a mixed bag of everything, which was kind of odd. Like usually if somebody's injured, it looks like he's injured. And there were a couple of times where he was hobbling around after yeah. a play, especially, I think there was one, uh, throw down the sideline on a fade to Rambo um, that he yeah. got called for PI. He came up limping right after that. Um, so I don't know if he's just not quite there and some, some of that's messing with his mental. Um, but he's getting beaten a bunch of different ways. And well, I'm going to say that... this. Can I say this? Yeah. I think mental, you, you said it there, mental. And if you think about the first big play of the game for Miami, that it was a 30, it was the 39 yarder to Rambo. He played absolutely perfect coverage. It was just a perfectly thrown ball and a perfect catch. Yep. Down down the right sideline. And my my question kind of goes back, go back to yourself. You're playing, you play a perfect technique, play everything perfect, and some guy just gets you, beats you, sacks a quarterback. Yeah. And that first play, I mean, I mean, that was literally early in the game. Um can that be one of those things that's just in your head the rest of the game and then you, you awkwardly, you know, step on your foot and the mental part of, well, they've already hit me. I've already played perfect coverage. I stepped on my foot wrong. That doesn't feel right. I got a PI call. The next thing you know, it's it's all up here. And I know yeah. that's the coach's job. To this get- this has been kind of going on the last couple of weeks, though, because he had, what, three PIs against Duke. Um, he he well, wasn't great. I, I know some of those were um, <laughs> one legit PI. Two. I get that. I get that. Um, but you know, some of this had been, he's had some rough games the last three weeks. This just happened to be the one where we couldn't there it. was a quarterback and a receiver that could make him pay for it. And, yeah. um, and it happened. And, it, you know, it, it's sad to say, like, I, like I said, I don't know if this is just, one or two bad plays and the mental spilling over into the physical, um, that definitely can happen. Um, you know, the whole thing, don't let one bad play beat you twice. Uh, it seems to be kind of the, the, the thread here. Um, but he wasn't the only one that was struggling out there in the secondary. Um, we had obviously early, we lost, uh, we lost Tay Daly. So we ended up kind of having to go uh, different directions in the safety area there. Um, so that that's twofold, right? So it's not only are you having to have another guy on there for more snaps, but you're not able to give them as many uh, as many blows either. So As many blows. Uh, Can we talk to targeting real quick? Yeah. It, it had, and I watched the Pitt-UVA game. Second one, same way. It was shoulder. It was no ill intent. It was no real targeting. It was just one of those things, I'm going to throw my shoulder into him. His head got down to my shoulder level. If you want – what do we always say? We go back again. This is what Fuente said, and this is our sentence. Do you want to call that a 15-yard penalty? Sure, right? That's fine. a, a, A hit to the head, fine. Essentially, make guys go lower. Ejections for that, it's it's bullshit, and it's got to somehow get fixed in the next year or so. 
Tay Daly and the kid from Pitt should have never been off the field in those games. I'm going to say something wild. I'm going to say something wild here. I want the referee to have discretion as to whether something is intentional or not, and that can be the differentiating factor between between ejection and just unnecessary roughness. And the reason I say that is because we've gotten to a point where you're losing players that all they did were ma- was making a football play. Yeah. No 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 well intent, no launching, no head hunting. Just trying to make Like this a is good. a guy trying to just put a strong shoulder into a guy to finish off a tackle and all of a sudden he drops his head and there's a there's a new zone there and the defender can't change. I mean it's it's a it's a bang bang play. The defender has zero time to recognize what's happening. It's true. And and it's shit because I think that did hurt us on the back end um, because how early was that in the game? I'm trying to look through my notes here. Second drive, I think. It was 7-3 when that happened, I think. Let me get my notes here. Yeah, guys, we we keep notes, believe it or not, how nerdy we are. Um, Because it wasn't the first drive. No, I'm pretty sure it was the second drive. If it wasn't, it was the third. Either way, either way, it was garbage. It was garbage. And it definitely hurt us, especially on the back end as experiences Tay Daly in, putting more inexperienced guys in. All right. Other thing, Brian, you talked about was keep behind the sticks. And and I'm gonna say this when we did keep them behind the sticks, they struggled. And, and there yep. was a way in the third quarter and early part of the fourth that we got back in this game because of that. Um, but still, the money stops, you know, seven for 13, including the fourth down stop that wasn't a stop. So they were over you know, they were over 50%. So even though it was critical – What do you grade it? I mean, D, C minus, maybe. I'm gonna go C minus. Um, you know, it depends on how much credit you want to give them for the uh, fourth down that wasn't. (laughs) I think that's whether you go C or D here. Yeah, overall it wasn't bad, and I think some of it we benefited from. You know that period, you know, late second into the uh, majority of the third quarter where they weren't able to just sling it deep because some of the weather there. Yeah. Um, so we benefited from that, um, and that I think that kind of stacks the uh, the grade a little bit there for us. Um, so it could have been much worse potentially if they were able to play their game the whole time. Um, can I ask but, this? Can yeah. I ask this about the keeping behind the sticks? Do you think I'm going to say this was Jay Ham's worst game he called? How many times we were in the wrong coverage? For the potential, because it seemed like every time we were getting beat deep downfield, I felt like a couple times it was like cover two, a couple times it was like cover one. We were playing straight man, and you always mention you like quarters or a cover three look, especially against downfield passing teams, because yep. downfield passing teams having those guys back 15, 20 yards, he has to anticipate right. Yep. 
why why was Ham mixing it? I know on the Harley play that the cut the, the touchdown, we were in cover two. And I asked you earlier about this. So kind of give your explanation. It shouldn't have been a touchdown, but should we have really been in cover two? I, I mean, we, we run cover two occasionally. We we usually mix it with a cover two man under look, which I would have been okay with there because at least you would have probably not have Dax matched up on a, uh, a corner here. Essentially, so so Dax's responsibility is, is, is to carry up the seam uh, as deep as he can. And in this case, he did a pretty good job of limiting the space underneath to throw that the problem is is that there's supposed to be another safety on top of it but uh, Jenkins got caught looking in the backfield and was chasing the play instead of being on top of the the, the route there and uh, so he was out of position to be able to come up there that's a play that was probably going to be a, a, a 30 yard gainer anyway but it turned into a touchdown because Jenkins was out of position all right. Um, I, like I said, I would have preferred more of that man under look. Um, I would have preferred us to, once we realized they were slinging it all night, go into a true nickel, um, and essentially have artists out there with, uh, with Connor and get Dax off the field. Not no, no, no knocking Dax, but artist is now our best run linebacker. Keep him yeah. on there. And then, uh, then roll out Connor at the backer, and then get your extra uh, corner on the field there. That would have been what I would have done. Uh, it would it would have helped somewhat. Uh, but again, we were still in coverages at wrong times. We were still blowing coverages, uh, blowing assignments. Uh, it yep. was kind of a mixed bag of everything that could possibly go wrong in the secondary. True, and it all happened in one game. It, it did. And you talk about blown coverages. Something else you made a big point of on Wednesday night was we've got to make them settle for three. Well, they they got down there four times. We only held them to three once. On two of the touchdowns, it was absolutely blown coverages. Um, The one to the tight end, Mallory, somebody completely vacated that side. Amari rode him up. There was no one there. So once he got by Amari and there's no one vacating that, whoever was supposed to be back there vacated the zone. It was an easy pitch for Van Dyke. And then the other one, I know you talked about Keyshawn Artis. On the other touchdown close to the goal line, he blew. It was a little play action fake. He stuck his head in right outside. He It was in his zone. You could tell it was. And that's – you say what you want to say. If I can't go back and say, well, if they had been in their right zone, does it result in three, not seven? Don't know, but it yeah, it's hard to say. The, the Mallory play was interesting because you had you Amar. had two guys there, and it looked like it was. I think whoever had the uh, the, the curl zone uh, was playing a little too shallow, and then Waller got in no man's land where he could decide if he was going to stay deep to make sure he didn't uh, let something creep behind him or come up and, and get Mallory. And by the time he decided to come and get Mallory, it was too late. Way too late. And that was on a um, that was on a field side blitz. So your best pass rusher in Barno is riding up Mallory up the sidelines in that case, right? Yep. Yeah, and like I said, I, I'd have to look at the tape again to see who had that uh, 
that other that other part of the zone there. But yeah, Waller got kind of in in no man's land and just didn't make the right choice there. Uh, I think if he realized that there wasn't anyone coming across the field behind him, he would have probably came up and made a play. Probably could have had a pick if he you know recognized the uh, the route on time. But you know, I think he was thinking too much on that one. Very true. All right, Brian. So overall defense, it, it was just not a good night for those guys, regardless. Um, they, they had their moments that let us get back into it, but essentially they gave up another couple late that essentially put the game away from Miami. Um, let's, let's go to another unit that had been the best unit we've had all year, our special teams unit. As far as it goes for the return coverages, I mean, definitely their worst. 86 yards on kickoff returns, 65 on punt returns. And, I mean, that's 150-plus yards. That is a ton of field position with a defense that's struggling. Um, And it looked like just to me, not really – it wasn't like really bad play, bad play calls. You only have so many. It looked just like terrible technique and terrible leverage – Every single time. Yeah, uh, there was one, uh, the, the big, the one long kickoff. Uh, looks like guy got out of, got out of his lane, um, got blocked a little bit, and it just opened up. There was a crease there. And we had one that thankfully got called back. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was an awful night for, for the coverage, man. Um, I just think that for something that's been a strength all year, it's odd to see that that breakdown and I don't know if it was leverage. I don't know if it was, you know, some of it was leverage. Some of it could have been, all right, you got the elements you're dealing with that, but I mean, everybody else was dealing with that too. You you can't really use that as an excuse. Um, You just got to go out there and try to do better next time. Well, the first punt return. Yeah. That was the sealer right there. Yeah. Sorry. It's okay. Herbert to, Herbert to Eckler and seal Brian's fate. Um, sorry, bud. Uh, but the first punt return, like we have the guy trapped, and for some reason, they—I can't remember the number—but the guy seems to step left, and I'm sitting like, "Why are you stepping left? Right is all of the open field. All you need to do is step right and force him back up inside. At least he's going towards the sideline. He stepped left. He went right around him, and next day it's a forty-yard gain." And they were already having success. So, you know, we got to understand where your leverage is and where your help is. And that's an instance of missing both. Now I would, I would find it interesting, you know, to see how many younger guys, if this was one of those things where, well, it's late in the season. um, We need to start getting some guys, some PT, you know, essentially they're not, they're going to, even if we go to a bowl game, they're going to get their red shirt. So I wonder if that was part of it. I, 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 I might look back on some of the condensed versions, see if we can find out who they were on those and see if it was maybe lesser, um, not lesser skilled guys, but lesser guy, guys with lesser PT on the field. Less experienced uh, folks yeah. on the special teams unit. Yeah, it, it could be. Um, I, I tend to, unless it's somebody that I recognize right off, I tend to not – pay a ton of, t- of attention to to who's making the plays on special teams as long as they, they're made, um, especially on some of those, uh, the coverages, just because you don't see quite as many um, 
uh, starters on those units. Absolutely. As you All right, Brian. Let's flip over, yep. Let's flip over to the offense. Now we're rolling here about 30 minutes deep. Let's talk about the rushing offense. If, if, if you had had to go somewhere, didn't get to see the game, but I texted you, Brian, 43 rushing, 227 yards, over five a carry. This seems good, right? That seems about what I was hoping for in the game. But then if I told you, well, Thomas got seven carries, Raheem got two carries, the ACC running back of the week last week got two carries, Keyshawn King got two carries, and then I told you Blumrick and BB got – Blumrick 30, BB 10. T- tell me what would be in your mind and what would you want to do to certain people? Yeah, this is a big problem. Um, <laughs> so l- l- let's talk about a few things because there, there's there's layers to this, right? Oh, it's it's so layered. It's so... And, and I'm good with Blumrick getting out there. I'm, and the way that we started the game, Blumrick had packages that he was coming in. Yeah. Um, there, there was like, you know, the, you know, wild Turkey, there was some other, th- other things that he was doing, yeah. um, just straight quarterback sweeps, uh, quarterback leads, you know, there's a handful of things that they were throwing out there just to mix it up and not use BB on a, a ton of these design runs. Let BB, if he's going to run, be, be a scramble drill or, or something like that. And BB had a couple big runs early. Um, one one pretty big one uh, where it looked like it, as fast as I've seen him run that that was what I, I th- you know he, he's shown speed but I, I didn't really appreciate how fast he could really be until that play but we just have we haven't seen enough of that consistently just because he's been pretty much banged up I mean kind of since week one right um, yeah he, he had a little little nicked in that game he's been a little nicked since then. Um, yep. it's been ribs. It's been a little uh, hand. It's been like, it's been a little bit of everything, right? Shoulder. Um, so, but then we ended up just 30 carries by our quarterbacks. I just, I don't know what to do with that. I get that there was, we got to a point where BB was nicked again and you got Blumrick. So, you know, you're going to get, you know, the, the Notre Dame game plan script from that point on, you know, yep. that, that, that we saw a couple years back with QP, you're going to get that type of script. Um, but not giving it to the running backs is the baffling part. It's one thing if, you, if you're devoting yourself to the run, it's completely different if you're just using your quarterbacks as battering rams. Which is essentially um, just, what we did. Yeah, and, and the, the problem I have with that is that if you look at some of the other things is that it created other problems for the offensive line and there was some trickle down there. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, and I, I know we have it in a different order, but I'm going to leave with this, the Caden Moore pull sack. Um, some of that is set up directly <laughs> because we were not <laughs> using our, our running backs. So, so if you're if you're covering a read option or any sort of um, quarterback rush where there's an option for the quarterback to give, primarily you're going to use either a squeeze or a pop technique. You're going to either squeeze to kind of slow play it, make the quarterback uh, make a choice, and then you want to try to get them to keep it so you can come up make the play, uh, or pop it. You're going to essentially attack the mesh point. Either you're going to make the quarterback give it, or you're there to make it make a tackle. 
Well, once they saw we weren't handing the ball to the running back, it was pop all day. They were going right at the mesh point every mm. single time. Every time. There was no waiting. There was no there there was none of that. No hesitancy. I'm going right at the quarterback and he's either going to give it because it's smart or I'm going to get me a big play in the backfield. And that so, was a big play in the backfield. And and here's one where we got a we got a counter action counter play action on a uh, on a pass and Caden's pulling across the formation to essentially block the uh, the guy that would normally be a read and a read option. Um, but he's already thinking, all right, if this is a read option, I'm attacking the mesh point. He's flying upfield. He's five yards upfield before yes, Caden even gets into the position there. Um, so it's not so much that that play can't work or that scheme can't work. But in this situation, and, and I'll, I'll critique Caden here a little bit, uh, probably a bad bad step, a little bit slow getting across there, but that's made worse by the fact that 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 uh, defensive end is flying upfield already. It, it was it, it was worse than because they already knew tendency, right? Yeah. They, the, the tendency was they're not giving it. He's going to keep it. So I'm just going to fly off. And if he gives it, oh, well, they're down in the game. And it was just like, it's this whole thing that, again, this offensive coordinator cannot grasp. In that case, if you start giving it more up the middle or even on those, the veers we saw, you will make them have to start thinking again because Malachi Thomas or Raheem Blackshear or even Keyshawn King, you make the wrong mistake on them and they get the scene, it's a house call. It's 40 or 50 yards. Yep. They had no fear of it. They got the ball seven times. They got the ball basically 12%. No team is going to be scared of the running backs if you're giving them 12%. Especially the- a guy like Raheem that does better with volume, and, and Malachi yes. uh, does better with volume as well. When you get do. them more carries, they, they are more consistent. So um, you got kind of essentially cold backs at this point, right? Backs that have either been blocking most of the game or haven't been on the field or, or been decoys. Yeah, like decoys. What, so, like, so, so guys who uh, have essentially carried your offense since Notre Dame, right? Yep. Since Notre Dame are decoys in a game you need to get bowl eligible on the road. Yeah. Somebody doesn't want a job after this. Somebody doesn't want a job. <laughs> um, Somebody's but, looking at Nathan Hale with, with, with a big grin right now. He's like, all right, I'll be there next year. Yeah, hey, five years here at $500,000. I've saved my money. Um, let's, yeah, let's so, talk about the, the passing offense. You know, it wasn't help. We did give up four sacks. We had six tackles. They had six tackles for loss. Um, ugly stat line to me. Ugly passes. 19 for 28, 148. Three touchdown passes. All of them were right at the goal line. And just some of the ugliest freaking passes um it was raining yes but they were still ugly i don't care what anybody says i'm with you and i mean so let's start with one thing the offensive line didn't have the greatest night in pass bro it wasn't awful but it was one of their definitely in the lower 50 percent of their effort this year um that was compounded a little bit by a lot of the things that were going on behind the line of scrimmage uh with the quarterback situation 
And uh, as you said, 1928, 148, three touchdowns. A lot of that was on about three plays, um, mm-hmm. two of which were to uh, one. I uh, sorry, one of which was to Trey Turner that uh, he ended up getting injured on. Um, and really, if Trey Turner doesn't make two plays, and, and then you've got uh, some of the other uh, younger guys that we're going to talk about in a little bit making a couple plays, that stat line could have been even worse. That stat line could have um, been like the, these weren't routine catches, ladies and gentlemen. This this was uh, you know pulling the rabbit out your hat a little bit. That stat line legitimately could have been fifteen for twenty eight, maybe eighty five yards. Maybe yeah, somewhere somewhere thereabouts. Maybe maybe a hundred. Maybe a hundred. <laughs> I'd have to go back and do the math. It wouldn't have been over hundred and fifty. I know that. No. Um. But let me let me ask this, Brian. We're going into UVA next week. You you, you mentioned that you about Connor. You you. I mean, he that ugly screen pass. Good lord, he threw that thing right into the dirt. But is is it is he a is he even a better chance? Throwing the ball? So I'll say this. You, you talked about the one in the dirt, but then you talk about when Braxton was in there, he sailed one about 10 yards above Tay's head. So <laughs> I don't know which is worse. Um, <laughs> neither were catchable unless you were in the immediate vicinity of the quarterback. <laughs> so um, I'll tell you the one thing that Blumrick does is that he does throw a ball – more than 15 yards downfield that gives our receivers a chance to make a play on it. Uh, he does that better than Braxton. What Braxton has is he has accuracy in the short game when he's able to have a clean pocket, step into it, make a good throw. Um, he doesn't have the arm strength to do anything beyond that. He doesn't throw the out very good when he's got to drive it. He doesn't throw a good deep ball. Um, he, he doesn't really do a good job of attacking the middle of the field. So, you know, maybe Blumrick as, as sad as it is to say, gives us the better chance because he, he does put a ball up there down the field that gives our receivers a chance to do something with it. Um, maybe we stick with him, um, just because he is also the more durable, quarterback if we are going to stick with running our quarterbacks this much in the uh, UVA game as well freaking times yeah um it'll be it'll be I'm I'm sure Monday presser something will be asked about that so it'll be sort of mind-blowing we've got you know seven six days roughly give or take um you mentioned it earlier a little bit of youth movement um on probably Connor Blumrick's best thrown ball downfield, Dwayne Lofton, he gave him a chance, and Dwayne caught it. Yeah. And, I mean, that was that's a tough throw. Um, and he put it where only Lofton could get it, and Lofton went and got it. Yes, he did. Uh, you know, full extension. Uh, it, it, was, it was probably one of the two best plays of the night, and Trey Turner had the other one uh, yes, on the – uh, the, the catch at the goal line there for the touchdown. Um, very uh, vintage uh, Odell Beckham Jr.-esque. Yes, <laughs> um, but, but we also had Jalen Jones get a big catch uh, on a uh, dig um, across the middle where he took a big pop uh, after the catch. So 
you know, those two guys getting involved in the passing game is big. Um, I'd like to see more of that. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. sad that we didn't see more earlier in this season, especially for the fact that I'm pretty sure at this point, Lofton's shirts burnt, um, despite not really getting a whole lot of actual targets. Right. Um, I want to say he's, I want to say he's played in at least four at this point. Uh, give me a second here while I'm looking that up, Brian, let me ask this. Give me the overall assessment of the offensive coordinator. Tell me, tell me right now, like, you know, he's coaching for his future. And I know we're, we've joked about it, but let's be serious. Right now, I mean, is he going D2? Best. At case? best. At best. At best. Uh, I can't see him getting a coordinator job. Like, he's not going to get any decent uh, FCS coordinator job. At all, I mean, his his this, only hope, his only hope is for when they gets a G five job in Hireson. Yeah, I mean the thing is, is that the, the the secret's out on him at this point. This isn't this isn't a guy that's having a bad run or a guy that doesn't have the talent. Right, um, this is a guy that has shown who he is, what he is. Um, we've got guys on the record saying what he does. Um, yeah. You know, the only thing that he does well at this point is uh, misdirection with motion. That's it. <laughs> he, gets, he gets the linebacker's eyes moving in the wrong direction on occasion. Okay. Good for you. Well, um, when you dictate where the ball's going to go eventually, you don't think they can – you don't think these guys who are coached and watch a ton of tape say the coach is on the sideline. When you see this play happen, just go just go with this guy. Why? Because homeboy over there is going to tell him to give it to this guy. There's not going to be a or, read. Or, or tell him not to, you know, a lot of times it's either sometimes the, the window dressing gives away the play, and then sometimes the window dressing you just need to ignore. And once you figured out what, what window dressing to pay attention to and which ones to ignore, the, the secret's out. <laughs> Very true, Brian. All right, Brian, you know, before we get into looking at some coaching candidates for the Virginia Tech job, guys, we like we told you Wednesday, we, we did a bunch on this. We are going to take a quick pause from our digital partners. As we take a quick break, we'd like to tell you about getting your free website report from our digital partner, Grassroots Digital Marketing Studio. They'll tell you how your website ranks on Google, on-site SEO, and social media. No commitment to buy anything. You can get your free report by visiting grassrootsdigitalstudio.com forward slash free dash website dash report. Now back to the episode. All right, guys. So we have made a list of close to 15 guys. Um, and we made a list of no chance in hell. And we made a list of one guy we won't, but we're probably not going to get. So we're going to start with the four dark horses. There's been some rumors of these guys. I we we just in 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 our hindsight, we can't see any of these guys actually accepting this job or us offering the job. And those are these four as follows: Byron Leftwich, Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive coordinator; Bill O'Brien, the OC at Alabama for an NFL head coach; Hugh Freeze at Liberty. And Brent Pry, who is the defensive coordinator up at Penn State. Um, 
I'd say two of these we we probably will at least contact. How far we get the process, I don't know. I'd say Bill O'Brien and Brent Pry are more of of the four are, are more likely to get into the process here. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you what your opinion is on that, but that would be the two that I would say have a better chance in the dark horse category here. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I don't know a lot of people. I got texted about buddy last night, like Hugh Freeze. Like we're, we're not hiring Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze has a stain on him that I don't think our administration ilk will go for. I just don't. Yeah, I think it, you know, I, I think, think it would be a good hire. I don't think that Virginia Tech goes that route for whatever reason, uh, whether plus, it's wit's choice, whether it's you know guys on the board of visitors that aren't aren't willing to to sign that check or, or sign off on that. Um, there's going to be pressure from from multiple levels to probably not give Hugh Freeze the look he probably deserves, um, and that's just you know you call that a fit choice, whatever it is. I mean, some some of fit is 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 being able to fit into that, that type of parameters. So um, if you got a guy that's, that's butting against your board of visitors every couple months, that's probably not a good thing. Um, so that's probably why it's not going to happen. Uh, like I said, I think he's, if it was my, my choice and I, I'd <laughs> he'd be in, he'd be in my top five. Um, oh, yeah. So oh. <laughs> yeah. but, but now I'm, I'm going to say this though with LSU already being open and now Florida coming open put Dan Mullen as a dark horse too it's just later in the process um, but I think now Hugh has his sights on two programs and I'm not saying they don't care about what, what happened before but it's less like you listen we don't really care we just want to win 85 to 90 percent of the time and compete for championships so there are I just mentioned five dark horses um they're they're on our minds we just can't see them going any further but let's start with the first name here Brian I'm going to do the pros we'll do the cons have a little back and forth Mike Elko Texas A&M defensive coordinator a couple of his pros y'all um he had been with Dave Clawson previously, had two very successful stints with Clawson before he went up to Notre Dame and Texas A&M, much bigger time programs. Um, he does have obviously some ties to the state of Virginia recruiting, being at Richmond with Clawson and then being at Wake Forest. His defenses have always been good. Like he's never had like the worst defense in the country. Um, obviously it's gotten better looks as he has gotten more talent, especially Notre Dame for a few years. And again, being at Wake Forest, they had some solid defenses, obviously has a little bit of player development to go along with his good recruiting. Yeah. And, uh, and for the cons, uh, you know, the big thing we're looking at is really no head coach experience that that's out the gate is going to be the big one. Uh, and that might be the the one thing that that keeps him off uh, Wit's radar. I know he said that he's not shying away from guys that have only been coordinators, uh, but he also is, you know, he said the Power Five job and the ACC being your first head coaching gig is going to be a tough jump. So uh, I think he's only going to look at a coordinator if it's absolutely one hundred percent the guy he wants or the guy he thinks is going to be the best fit. Um, 
so that that's kind of where we are with uh with the cons and you know we got another one here uh most recruiting success has been in texas uh and that's really the big thing uh when you look at his recruiting numbers um and the guys that he's pulled most of those big recruits have been in texas we know how that story goes in terms of uh how that relates to blacksburg it, you know you can pull one or two it's not something where you can build a pipeline nope. um and he really you know in terms of uh being on the the head coaching radar he really hasn't been on that that radar until some of the success recently at a&m um and then you know, previously at notre dame so um, Elko is really kind of a new face in terms of, uh, being on the head coaching radar. I don't know if that's necessarily something that would shy folks away from it, but it is something to look at there. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you balance his pros and cons, would it be, would, would we be throwing things and wanting to drive to Merriman to pick it? No, we would. I think he'd be an okay hire, but I, but I definitely think we can do better. Um, I do think Elko is on the verge of probably the next two years, he's going to get a head coaching job. I do not think he will get a big P5 job. I think he will have to land somewhere like a Wake Forest, like a Syracuse, and build his ilk from there. Yeah, if he's going to go power five, probably the bottom end, uh, you know, maybe maybe even Duke if that comes open. I don't want that. I wouldn't want it either. I'm just saying <laughs> he might take it anyway. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with you there. Uh, I think the big thing with Elko is that, you know, we, we don't know a whole lot in terms of what that, what, what he would look like as a head coach. And I think that's something that unless he's got, he checks a whole lot of other boxes, that might be the thing that holds him back. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and move on to, uh, we'll talk next about Josh Gaddis. Um, some of the pros for Josh Gaddis, uh, he was born and played in the region. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's a big thing for him. Um, he's had some big stops in his career, uh, you know, big stops throughout his career. Uh, he was an NFL draft pick and player. So having that NFL experience definitely, um, adds to the pedigree there has some experience in mid Atlantic recruiting. Um, and he was the recruiting coordinator at Penn State. So I think that's really, that, that, you know, when you look at the overall body of work there, um, some, some pretty good things to talk about. Um, what are some of the cons on Gaddis there, Curtis? Yeah, Gaddis, Michigan OC. You know, first of all, it's the one, the next y'all are going to kind of start seeing a trend here. He has no head coaching experience um, at any level. Um, here's my biggest con. Me and Brian were talking about this. When Mike Sloxley got his job at Maryland, he and Gaddis were co-OCs. When Loxley got the job, he was not internally promoted immediately to head offensive coordinator. And essentially, when that happened, you know, he left. He went up to Michigan. And since he's been at Michigan, it's taken him a little bit of time to, um, you know, kind of – kind of show exactly what he's all about you know he's been at Michigan now for this is his third season they were okay in 2019 they didn't look great last year they're finally hitting strides this year biggest test this weekend against Ohio State and this is one I always talk about he's only ever coached elite talent as an OC 
And when you start coaching guys at that level, is it is, is it some of what you say and do helps? Yeah. But when you have the best players or near the top of the best players at every single position as an offensive coordinator, some things it's just like, you know, I hate to say this, something like, well, let's just run a power over right. 37-yard touchdown. Yay, great call. Now that's the players. So, um, you know, if he's hired, you feel like, you know, probably haven't seen any interviews with Josh Gass. So you probably feel he's probably got a good personality the way he recruits. Um, but I think he's one of those jobs. If he continues to do good at Michigan, if, if they – if they beat Ohio State next week and they go to the playoffs, I think he will get a solid head coaching job somewhere. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, with Gaddis, he's probably one of the more under-the-radar uh, coordinators that's made our list here, I would say. Um, I think he is getting a lot of good looks. Some of that is – you know, because he was born and played in the region. Um, and I think some of that is just his overall pedigree. And then the, the couple big stops with Penn state and now at Michigan that he's had, um, you know, at Bama in there as well. So, um, you know, we'll see if he ends up staying on the radar as we kind of move along here. True. So who's up next, buddy? Up next, uh, Marcus Freeman, defensive coordinator out of Notre Dame. Um, you know, his pros, wherever he's been at, he's shown the ability to recruit good players. And it's it's something that sticks because he was at Purdue, he was at Cincinnati. Um, if you've ever seen him speak, and I, I got to watch a video, um, his personality, it, it will blow you away. Hearing this guy talk about his philosophy, about players, you go to YouTube, just find a Marcus Freeman interview, and that will partially sell you on why he's above, you know, a few other guys who have had a little bit more time to leak programs. Yeah. Um, he wins. Player at Ohio State, um, what he's done at Cincy and Notre Dame last few years, that's, a, that's something. It's culture, right? Winning yep. culture is a thing. Well, they haven't given up a touchdown the last three weeks, have they? No, they haven't. They haven't given up a touchdown. Now, the other thing I like about him, and again, it goes back to this, being where he is now at Notre Dame with elite talent, like a guy like Kyle Hamilton, but he was at Cincinnati where he had to develop guys. So he's showing you that combination that, to me, is why some head coaches do so well. Which will about Nick Saban, he has a ton of four and five star guys, but you also see three star guys come in there and make impacts, right? He knows how to coach the elite. He knows how to coach developmental. And to me, to be a top 15, top 20 program, that's a balance you have to have. Someone we just mentioned, I don't think Dan Mullen knows how to do that down in Florida. That's why he got fired. I think Dan knows how to coach developmental talent. He hasn't found a stride for the elite talent guys. I think he, I think he can consistently recruit top 30 classes, but he, he has to do more of the, on the development side. He's not a guy that can 
take he, he's not a guy that can get Florida the classes they should be able to get, yeah. but he also doesn't know how to handle those guys once they get in the door either. Absolutely. All right, Brian, let's let's as much as we just I just drooled all over Freeman, there are some cons there. Yeah, I mean the big one, this is still consistent, it's gonna be consistent with every coordinator that hasn't had had head coach experience is that no head coach experience at this point. Um, so any any chance we're taking on Freeman, we'll have that risk associated with it. Um, that's just going to be something we're going to have to potentially deal with. Um, and the second one being, he's only been at one place where he's had big expectations, and that's where he's at now, and he's only been there, you know, 90% of one season. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah. That that's that's interesting uh, angle there, just because you know while since he had expectations for a G five school, you know th- this wasn't make the playoffs type expectations. He's at, he's at a place now where the expectations to make the playoff, um, and he's showing out thus far. But uh, this is really you know a very small sample size at this point. Um, and the last one being, he's only really ever coached in the upper Midwest. We talked about Purdue, uh, Cincy, uh, Notre Dame obviously has OSU ties there. So, State, uh, yeah, Indiana, that's it. So Ohio state is the closest he's ever been to the mid Atlantic. And, And again, that's another sell, but again, I think, my positive, listen to him talk. I think that guy could walk into any mid Atlantic household and sell a football program. Yeah. And, and we've seen, and we've seen it done. I mean, he's got some, w- once he started uh, in a lot, a lot of with Cincy and a lot, of, especially now with Notre Dame, he's recruiting players from all over the country and he's having success wherever he's recruiting. So I don't think the recruiting part of it is necessarily a, a problem. Um, and and I don't necessarily think that we'll have a problem in terms of the fit in terms of his personality. Whereas yeah. Fuente, some of that's you know Oklahoma Texas type demeanor rub some wrong way. I don't think you'll have that with Freeman, even though he's not necessarily a, a regional guy. Yeah. Um. So. Those are the cons for Freeman. I, I feel really good about Freeman. Pre, Freeman is probably the highest I am on any coordinator on our list. Yep. I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So who we got next, though, Brian? All right. Next up, we got Tony Elliott, offensive coordinator at Clemson. Um, this is a name that was uh, very high on the buzz list last year when we thought Fuente might be out following the COVID year. Um, the big thing out the gate, this guy can recruit his ass off. Um, you look at some of the recruits he's pulled in, it's a who's who of the big name Clemson guys that have walked through the door. Um, and he has lower mid Atlantic recruiting experience. So he's recruited up into Virginia. He's recruited a lot in the Carolinas, recruited a lot in Georgia, some in Florida, um, and really completely torn it up. Um, and his offenses have set records. I mean, we look at 2021 is really the big outlier. Uh, some of that has to do with some of the limitations he's had, uh, with his quarterback play overall. Um, he's more of a running backs guy. So, you know, I'm not sure if we'll see, um, 
see that type of thing carry over there, but his offenses have done well uh, with really good talent and with, you know, just above average talent. He doesn't need a, a five-star number one or two quarterback in the class to get it done. And his position group has always performed, like I said, with the running backs there. They, they've always had pretty good numbers. Shipley's do is probably the bright spot of that offense this year overall. Um, obviously, Travis Etienne um, completely tore it up when he was here. Um, and when you look, listen to this guy talk, uh, much like Freeman, very infectious personality, uh, type of guy you want to play for, type of guy you want to hear speak about about your program. So, Curtis, we talked about the pros. What what are some of the cons here, man? Um, one of the cons is again no head coaching experience, and it's very limited recruiting in the DMV area. Very limited. He, he it, this isn't like his primary area. His primary area is down in Georgia and Florida, so he has some mid Atlantic experience, but he's not. It's not a ton of where we where we feel like we need to see it. Um, he's only ever coached in the state of South Carolina, Clemson and Furman. That's it. Um, so that's that's one of those. I'm not gonna say it's a red flag. At least it's only two states away. Um, you know, and it's in your footprint, so probably gets a feel a little bit about type of recruiting Virginia Tech can do. And here's my biggie. You, you talked about uh, having either elite or above average talent. So basically, Brian's saying five or four stars, some three. How does he how does he coach non-elite talent? And it's and I know if Clemson's a little different, they do have some, I guess you could say scheme fit guys and some more locker room guys than a place like Alabama or Ohio State. Um, But it's still a bunch of talent. It's still a top 10 talented team. And when you start taking guys away from that and putting them in that where we are, right now we're sitting 40, usually we sit somewhere between about 22 and 30. All right, how are you going to get 25 to play like 10? It's tough because when I say call power and they go 37 yards for a touchdown, can't do that anymore because it's not all there. Um, I like Tony. I think Tony has taken a hit this year with the way the offense has looked. Um, and and I don't, some of that's fair and some of that's not. But, I mean, it kind of is what it is. You, you take a hit, even you know whether it's deserved or not, you're the face of the offense. Um, so it kind of comes with the territory, right? It's true. You're the face, and especially when the guy that, you know, he was calling with went to South Florida, and now he's not doing great at all. Um, but it's one of those things. I don't think Tony lands anywhere this year. I think he's cooled off. But I think what will be interesting to see what happens is with him and Dabo, Brandon Street is a quarterback coach, right? Yep. If that's the issue – does Dabo pull a trigger? Because Dabo has done that a few times. He's let guys go. A couple guys have had good success and left. We're going to talk about another guy pretty pretty soon here that he did that with. Yes, we are. All right, but Brian, who's our next candidate up? All right, so next up we've got Dan Lanning, D.C. at Georgia. All right, so Dan Lanning, guys, his pros. Experience with winning programs. 
always a big thing, has a winning culture already instilled in him. And, you know, when we sit here and talk about, well, besides Georgia, you know, where else um, was he been? Well, he was with Mike Norvell in Memphis. So it was a potential Memphis connection. That was 16 and 17. When, again, Norvell came in there, kept Fuente going. He was also at Sam Houston State, a pretty good FCS power. Um, so, you know, it's like we win, we win, we win. Yep. Georgia since 2018. Um, and his unit – you know, whether it be the outside linebacking unit, always good at Georgia, or now the whole defense in general, um, they're an elite level. And I know they've got five-star studs all over the place. Other teams do too. The What he's getting out of them this year says a lot about him um, because they're dominating yep. in, un, to, to unprecedented levels in this era. Now, one more good thing about him, Lanning does has a pretty good um, mid-Atlantic footprint for his recruiting. Um, so it's not like that culture shock of coming from the Midwest or the upper Midwest down at the mid-Atlantic. Similar to Tony, even though there's not a lot of DMV in there, I still think that I think you would understand the cultures better than guys coming out from the West or even the Midwest. All right, Brian, what's the cons? So cons, I mean, we've already said it for a lot of these guys, but the big one is going to be the no head coach experience. Um, We really don't know how he's going to handle a head coaching experience. Would he be a CEO type uh, guy that can work with the donors, all the stuff, the, the, the things that a coordinator don't have to deal with, Um, you know, will he be able to handle those type of roles and the other the other big one here is that he's really only been on the the coaching radar um since he's been a co- coaching elite players at Georgia um yeah he wasn't a guy that was looking to make a big step up before that now he's at Georgia he's coaching elite players and now all of a sudden he's getting some head coaching buzz so that may be a little bit of a red flag uh, but overall Lanning has a good uh good overall resume um, I don't like him quite as much as Freeman in terms of just the other upside that he brings to the table. Um, uh, but I do think that he would be a, a pretty okay fit if that ended up being the, the route we went with. Yeah. I think he'd be an okay fit kind of get us back to, you know, the, the Beamer bud type mentality, um, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but I think he's a year away. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you pull the trigger on him now, maybe the biggest upside is you probably can get him a little bit on the cheap. But I think there's there's enough red there where you say he needs one more year. He needs a lot of these guys on this defense to go away, which is going to happen this year with Georgia. How does he do it next year? Because I think if they dominate like they did this year, they lose people, they're top 15 defense next year, then he's going somewhere. Interesting to see where. All right, Brian, we're going to stop right here because everyone else on this list is a head coach somewhere, somewhere. But we wanted to bring up some names (laughs) just so people can get this out here. This is the Boundary Corner podcast saying this. There are some people, these people, this is not, these are absolutely not happening. 
Let's start. Number one, Brian, Shane Beamer. Shane Beamer. Shane Beamer could have happened last year. It will not be happening this year. Go he ahead and write it too. off. And there's and there's several reasons that Shane's not happening. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. I mean, aside from every every reason that was brought up last year, we ain't paying a, the damn buyout to get Shane out of that contract in South Carolina. Seventeen and a half million. <laughs> that is not happening. That alone is is the, is why it's not happening. So number two, Ed Orgeron. Oh, no, no, that is not happening. No, it's not happening. Um, Cocho's 61 years old. What I love the guy's personality, but I do not want him as my head coach. After what I've been hearing about going on at LSU, about his age, um, I think he's a damn fine coach overall, but I don't think that what he brings to the table is a good fit for Blacksburg. Right now. Right yep. now. Now, do I think Coach O is going to land somewhere head coaching? Probably not. But I think he's going to go out there and do the Coach O uh, recruiting pitches, and he's going to help some team out. If I'm him, whoever the uh, USC candidate is, I'm immediately picking up. Coach, you want to be the AHC and my recruiting coordinator? Absolutely. Absolutely. Number three, we love him. And he is an icon, but he's not coming back, y'all. Bud Foster is not coming out of retirement. Bud um, Foster loves the lake and doesn't want to blow up his heart. So, damn right. <laughs> damn right. Let, let Bud enjoy the lake, enjoy the boat, enjoy coming to games where he doesn't get quite as worked up as he does on the sidelines. Um, and let him enjoy it. Um, it's not happening. Yeah. It, I mean, it could have happened six years ago, and I'd have been 110% fine with it. It should have um, happened so, 10 years ago. Yeah. It should have happened 10 years ago. I'm with that. And, and, and even if it didn't, it should have happened six years ago. I would have been perfectly yeah. fine with that hire. Um, so, unfortunately, we're at a point where that, that, that has passed. Um, and the last one, guys, is Gary Patterson, because that would not work at all. Anyone thinking it would is outside their damn mind. They're outside their minds. It's, again, age. Coach O and Gary Patterson, same age, 60-plus um, years old. You also, can't fire a head coach and then hire his mentor. No, you can't. You can't do that. Maybe that's why Bud didn't get the job, because essentially that's kind of what happened. But, nah, the Gary Patterson thing is just not happening. You see it out there. You kind of chuckle. Um but, Brian, there is one guy that we did not put on this list. And we would absolutely love to have this guy. Love it. Yep. Kyle's not that big. Track record's great. But it's just not happening. It's not happening, and it's Luke Fickle. And the reason it's likely not happening is because of the move of Cincy into the Big 12. And I think that move is essentially a green light for Fickle to take as much time waiting on a blue blood program to come calling as it takes. True. Whether that's this year or whether that's two to three years from now after he's led Cincy to two straight college football playoffs. Exactly. <laughs> whatever what whatever it is, um, yeah, I think Fickle, because of that move, because of the new money that's going to be coming into that school, because of that move, because of the big bump he's going to get, because of that move, he doesn't need to go anywhere. 
Yep. He gets he he gets to wait till he is ready. The fit is right, one hundred percent for him, and yeah, well, probably the price is right as well. If they if if the Big Twelve can stay kind of the relevancy where it is right now, and he starts running shop there every year, why is he ever going to leave? I can make the playoffs every year. So why am I going to leave this? So, but that's that list. Now let's start with the list of current sitting head coaches. We feel potentially have a shot and we're going to start with Will he will Healy down at UNC Charlotte. Um, he's younger than us. I don't know if that's a yeah. pro or a con, I, you know, say what you will, but let's start this. Everything says is that he can sell the hell out of a program. Everything you read, you hear people talk about him. The guy knows how to sell a program. Um, He's obviously at UNCC, so he is clearly in Virginia Tech's recruiting footprint. So he probably has begun building relationships inside the state of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. I know South Carolina for a fact. Um, Had a family member go to one of his camps a couple summers ago. There you go. Um, he did show recruiting prowess at the FCS level. So, obviously, somewhat of a good salesman. The U of R grad thing, we put it on here as a pro because at least if you're a U of R grad, you've been in the state and you sign of know the hierarchy. You know the and lay it, of the land. You know how the college high school ranks operate to some degree. And you probably know the importance of Virginia Tech football to people. Go to U of R, you're probably dealing with somebody whose family is a hokey and lose their minds. More than likely, at least one coach on that staff is either a former hokey or has ties to the program in some way. Yep. And then, Brian, you threw this on here because this wasn't on here the other day. Club Lit. Hey. Healy likes to have a fun locker room. Um, yep. There are no silent dinners there. There's no quiet getting ready for a game. He lets the kids hang loose because I think, A, he's a young enough guy because he's 34, I believe. It's still in the back of his mind probably his college days. And the looser you are, the less you think about. So there are the pros. Um, Shout out Club Lit. You know who you are out there. Um, Let's go with the cons, Brian. What are you seeing? Uh, I mean, the biggest one, he never coached at a Power 5 school at any level, um, position, anything. anything. Um, He, below 500 as a head coach. Um, Now, I will throw out there that his first year at Austin P brings this uh, metric down significantly. But overall, as a head coach, he is is well below 500. Um, so that that's something that could be a red flag for a lot of folks, even though he's had some success at uh, a place like UNC Charlotte that hasn't seen a ton of it. Um, so that's one thing to look at. And really, he was a we've got a limited sample size of him as a FBS head coach at this point. Um, so we're not sure, you know, is is what he's been doing the early returns something that will trend over a five-year span or is that something that you know the fuente bump that we saw in uh 16 and 17 that will peter off yeah and you know the unc charlotte is an upstart program you know it's one of those new to fbs 
So him getting that job was crazy in the first place, and he's had middling success there. He did go to a bowl game his first year, had a great turnaround at Austin P. Um, and I, what you hear again about this guy is, if you want to get excitement going and getting people to pay, it seems like he is that type. He is a CEO. He's never coached at a P5, not, not a lot of positions. I know you mentioned his Chattanooga, and I've got it up here. His Chattanooga, where he was there for six years, is just labeled assistant. Yep. <laughs> Even guys who coach at that level, normally if you go look up something out there, on it gives a little more detail. Um, but just an assistant there, um, you know, it did say he does some quarterback coaching, wide receiver coaching, recruiting coordinator, passing game coordinator. So it literally sounds like, if they had a position to be filled, they just gave it to him, which is, I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I could, I could deal with Healy. I would worry about the staff though, because he doesn't have that many connections. I think there would be money for the staff. I really do. Cause I don't, Oh yeah. I don't think he would corner $5 million. No, nah, no, nah, yeah, he's more of a, I mean, probably two mil or less would, would get it done for him. Um, that, that opens up some more for your uh, assistant coach salary pool. You could run up the numbers later as reach for excellence reaches its peak. And when you get some more room to have some flexibility there. So there's some options there. If you get Healy in as your head coach, um, especially if, you know, he's able to sell the program, here like he's been able to do elsewhere but it's it's a lot of risk involved there you don't know exactly what you're getting as a head coach because of the limit sample size and you don't know how that success or at least middling success will translate uh to power five all right all right brian who you got next uh next up this one's gonna be fun to talk about it's uh dave clausen the head coach of wake forest um, you know, we got some pros here that we'll talk about. We got some cons, um, for the pros. Uh, it's a guy that's been really successful at every stop. Um, even if he hasn't necessarily blown away in the, in the win loss record, he's, he's definitely been successful. Um, and he is a player development guru. If you're, if you want a guy that can take your three star and turn them into all conference players, he's, he's got the ability to do that. Um, he's got connections to Virginia recruiting from his time at Richmond, from his current time at Wake Forest. Um, he is a Mike Young high floor type hire. Um, you, you is trying now. <laughs> I'm gonna let you, <laughs> you is trying now. Uh, you know, it, it's a guy that you know you probably need the right guys around him too, but. He's not. He's never going to be a guy that will go out there and get you sub 500 records in back-to-back seasons. He may not get you to the promised land, though, unless a lot of things go his way. Um, he understands complementary football. Um, a lot of times when you see the one side of the ball go down, the other side can, you know, tries to pick it up. Um, that didn't happen this past weekend, but... Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, it's a guy with with the right offense and the and the right um, right flow of the game can score a bunch of points uh, and get the right pieces in place there. 
But there are some cons to this hire. Curtis, what you got? Well, the, the biggest con of this hire, he's never been at a high profile, or, or he's only been at one high profile program in his long tenured coaching career, and that was one year as an OC at Tennessee. He's never had any expectations. There's no expectations at U of R. There was none at Bowling Green. There's none at Wake Forest. So immediately you walk in and you sit here at Wake Forest. If they go seven and five for the next decade and make a bowl, that program's happier than hell. They are. Yep. Not us. The other big things is as much success as he's had, we're winning and going to bowls. He's never really seen a recruiting moment. Currently, they're sitting 59th, I think, maybe 49th. I might have looked at that wrong in 247. So usually you see a guy get tenured and win some games. It's you're going to start picking off a four star here and there. He hasn't. And is is that just, you know, Wake is a is a smaller school. It's a private school. It's more difficult to get into. Could that be it? Or could it be he just doesn't know how to pitch anybody? That worries me. Now, the last one here is he's never really used the portal. He redshirts everybody. And at Wake, there's not much name, image, and likeness situations to start dealing with. That, I think, can be dealt with find the right compliance officers. But the one of not a lot of portal – we are in an era where you have to use the portal. You have to. Because whoever comes in here next year, you're probably looking at portal quarterback, probably some portal defensive linemen. Two? Two, 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 two portal quarterbacks. Quarterback, okay. So, <laughs> and this is, this is my thing. It, I think a Dave Clawson with what he does, I think if he went to a Florida and or LSU, he could potentially have better success. They recruit themselves. And it's easy to just go get two ace recruiters and say, here's $750,000, go recruit. When we get close to closing time, I'll come in and have a conversation with you by my side to close the deal on the kid. My my deal with Clawson is that I just don't think he is the type of guy that can relate to Virginia talent that we need to bring in the four and five star kids in the state. I, I don't think that that's a good fit for him. Um, I think that's where, that's where, that's where it's a deal breaker for me. Um, I mean, a lot of ways he has less personality than Fuente uh, <laughs> at times. And, I get that he has more of a grasp on how to recruit the area than Fuente did, but if that's not turning into recruiting wins, then it doesn't really matter that you got a better grasp. Um, so I, I just, I just, I don't think he's the, he's not a very good juice candidate. He doesn't bring the juice. Um, and, he's in, and, he, and he's in his mid fifties. Yeah. So and, and it's not just because he's old though. I don't, I, whether, whether he was old, young and different, his personality is not – he's not a juice the locker room. He's not – he doesn't juice the program. Nobody's getting excited that we got Dave Clawson, except yeah, maybe I'm a not. bunch of guys that are in their 60s that are like, all right, well, we'll at least win seven games every year. We don't want that. <laughs> all right, Brian, let's talk about the next guy here. Um, 
Jamie Chadwell, head coach, Coastal Carolina. What's our pros on him? So Jamie Chadwell, um, for the pros, he's won everywhere he's been. Uh, he hasn't been a lot of places, but he's won everywhere. Um, he's seen success in a difficult uh, G5 conference, so that's something to talk about there. Um, he's got an offensive focus, great offensive numbers. I think we need, probably going to still need some good offensive numbers because I think we'll be able to bring in a defensive guy. Um, it'll be interesting to see how we, how we recruit for offense, especially the way our roster is built right now. We're going to need somebody that can focus on that to get that built back up. Uh, so that, that's a positive in my mind. Um, he's got regional recruiting ties. He's been recruiting the the mid Atlantic for a while now. And he was a near unanimous uh, coach of the year in 2020. Uh, pretty much every publication uh, that offers that type of award named Jamie Chadwell coach of the year. Um, but Curtis, there's some cons with this, uh, with this hire. What, what you got for me? All right, quite a few cons. And what I'm going to add here at the end, we didn't talk about, but having a conversation with somebody over the weekend and I'll give him a shout out when we get there. First of all, similar to Will Healy, no power five experience at all. None. He's been at North Greenville, Delta State, Charleston Southern, and uh, College, excuse me, Coastal Carolina, not College of Charleston. That would be hilarious. <laughs> um, so, none. Next, limited sample size as a head coach of G5, Coastal Carolina, just recently flipped over. Um, so, not a lot of experience there, a lot of experience elsewhere. His best season was the COVID season, a very weird, funky season. They only lost one game that year. And if I can go back and recall, I think that was – who did they lose that game to? Give me a moment. I want to effort this up. The only game they lost was to Liberty in a bowl. So, you know, even that year the – best, The best Liberty team ever. Best Liberty team ever. Yes, we know all about that. Um, the other piece is because of similar to Healy, and I mentioned it before, can you bring in the type of staff we need to win? Can you bring in the right recruiters, the right coordinators? With not having that experience with a lot of connections at bigger programs, can he A, sell them to come here? The other thing I'm going to put as a, as a con, talking with our boy Delph, over the weekend, it is kind of a gimmicky. He was trying to compare it to Georgia Tech. It's not Georgia Tech because they throw the ball 20-plus times a game. But if you look at it, it is a gimmicky offense. It's essentially a shotgun triple option with with passing. Yep. And, you know, that worries me. A, a lot Essentially, of people, if you don't have the right trigger man, can it run? Exactly. Now he's had a he had a really good trigger man this year. Um, again, they still average more, but the question would be once you get. I think Delph was making a point: is once people get it on tape, does it still work? Try to say with the Fuente offense that people sold it out. No, the Fuente offense to me it's still not completely figured out because even as bad as offensive coordinator. As Cornelson is, there are times like, you know, when we can get 400 yards of total offense, 
and his play calls are shit. So, I mean, if we hired Chadwell, I would be sit there critical of the staff more than anything, similar to Healy. Okay. Yeah. The only thing I, I'd actually give Healy potential nod over Chadwell just because I could see Healy selling the program better than Chadwell, even though I think Chadwell might be the better X's and O's guy. I see Chadwell as kind of Fuente 2.0 in a lot of ways. Um, so that that to me is is kind of what I would stay away from. Um, I feel like you might have the same same type outcome if you go Chadwell that you had with Fuente. You might see a bump initially, but over time you'd see it kind of peter out. All right. This is essentially now we're in our top three. And I think the next guy is probably solid two, where the two top guys are one A and one B. Um, but let's go, let's go Tom Herman. Tom Herman, former Texas and Houston coach, currently is a Bears offensive analyst. After seeing what they did today against the Ravens, this might hurt his case, but we digress. What do you see in his pros for Tommy Herman? Uh, the first one, I'll, I'll throw this out there. We wanted him six years ago and couldn't quite get it done. We did. <laughs> we did. Um, that, that's a big one. Uh, he is the best coach not named Matt Brown since 1986. Been four other coaches. Uh, he's the only one to get them somewhat back into a level of relevancy uh, since yeah. Mac Brown left. Uh, and Mac Brown kind of left uh, in a inauspicious uh, way there in terms of where the program was left. So um, did pretty good, all things considering, especially the dumpster fire that he inherited uh, from Charlie. Uh, so, you know, th- that that's one thing to put it, put in his, uh, in his cap there. Uh, he was 22 and four at Houston, including a peach bowl victory. He won every bowl he played in while he was at Texas or he coached in at, at Texas. Um, he was 70% win percentage as a head coach. And he was the offensive coordinator and quarterback coach for a national title team at Ohio state. Uh, pretty good resume there. Um, big stops, uh, head coaching experience at the power five level. Um, just a lot of, lot of boxes checked with, with Tom Herman here. And, uh, overall, I mean, we, we didn't have it listed here, but a uh, good recruiting, uh, background as well. Yep. Good recruiting background. Um, the cons are kind of as follows, though, and I've got a few, and I'm going to flip one more pro on here. He did take a year off collegiate football. He went to the NFL level. Um, I think some people expected him to land somewhere at some school, maybe at Saban's or back at Ohio State, but he didn't, which was very telling to me. Um, really no major ties to recruiting in our region. Um, I, I see that as a negative because he's got to start understanding the mindset because um, he is a state of Texas coach. It's yep. kind of where he got his background and stuff from. But I think when you have a guy who's been at bigger programs, it's a lot easier. I think he would walk in and say, here's my three Virginia guys. Here's my three guys deeper down south. Here's my three guys from more up west. I'm going to listen to them and what they tell me about how I need to approach each section of the country. 
I think that's why he's had success. Now, my other piece, pro. This guy got fired after going seven and three last year. His three losses was an overtime loss to the Sooners in the shootout. Yep. And then two losses by less than three points. And they fired him. Clearly, he irritated some big booster down there after the bowl game. (laughs) My opinion. But I'd like Herman. Um, I think Herman could put a good staff together. I think guys would work for Herman because they know, again, 70% winning. You win at 70% clip, you know, roughly every three or four years, that's, that's 10 wins a year. Yep. And I think like the the really only negative that I think moves the needle for me is that he is a Texas region guy. Um, how will he adjust to that uh, in the mid Atlantic? Will he make that adjustment? And I think he can, uh, but that's really the only I think red flag for me that really matters because um, that's the one that's going to be the most important to to kind of flip in the other direction. All right, Brian. So we got to the top of the mountain and we have a 1A and 1B. We're going to start with the 1B. Um, let's talk about the head coach down at Louisiana Lafayette, Billy Napier. Yep. A um, lot of pros here. Uh, obviously, wow. we got experience as a head coach. Um, solid program that he's put together down at Lafayette. Um, kind of built that back up real quick. Um, winning some big time games. Uh, big time program experience since he's been coaching. So he's had some stops uh, at big, big programs. Um, obviously, we, we, when we talk about it, we're talking about Alabama as being the big one there. Um, and speaking of Alabama, he is a disciple of the Saban model. If you did not uh, read the athletic article on that, it's wild, yeah. like literally to a T. Um, yeah. Pretty crazy. Every, every aspect of the Saban model gets gets put into place at Lafayette, he runs that program like a power five program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he recruits the state well, despite just being a G five program. So that's a big thing that like, they're pulling in a couple, uh, you know, fringe four-star players, four-star players. Um, they're doing, they're doing some things down there that most G five programs don't do. Um, and he took over, you know, solid raging, raging Cajun program and made, you know, that, that team elite. Um, they're really running the, the, the good old Sun Belt now. So, and, uh, he has a great recruiting profile, including there's one painful one for every Hokie fan because yeah, it, Taj, it, Taj Boyd's on there. Um, getting of the downfall. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, he was at Clemson back in the, uh, late, uh, two thousands, um, yep. and recruited Taj Boyd and, as some other big time names from when he was at Alabama, including Jerry Judy and a couple other guys. So oh, yeah. uh, the, he's got a who's who of recruiting. So recruiting would take a, a, a big bump if we were able to make that, that, uh, that pull work. But what are some of those cons there, buddy? Well, it's, it's similar to the Fuente situation six years ago. It's another G five darling. He's doing great things at the G five level. He's, you know, He's he double digit wins for his second season down at Louisiana Lafayette. Um, the reports that he's been offered and he's passed on other jobs. Um, the Auburn and South Carolina jobs are kind of the first two that kind of open your eyes. There's more money there. There's definitely 
definitely, you know, especially Auburn, lots easier to recruit down there. Much easier to recruit than at Auburn. Um, so it's why didn't he take those jobs? Is it something he's truly trying to find that perfect fit? And could we be it? And he really has no established DMV ties. He got Boyd back 10 years ago, but there's there's not a lot here. He was born in Cookville, Tennessee. He grew up in the northern part of Georgia. He's only about five hours from Blacksburg from where he grew up. So it's one of those things. He's not extremely – did not grow up extremely far from Blacksburg, but definitely a ways. And – the G5 darling thing we put on there, it is. It, it happens every time. It happened to Herman. It happened to Fuente. And there'll be more. But to what Brian said in the pros category, Napier was at Clemson 06, 07, 08, 09. He got let go, I believe, in 10. I think I had his stuff up here. Dabo let him go. And that's one of those things, too, where he was not – Dabo's guy. He was originally Tommy Bowden's guy. He was there through 10. So he got fired at the end of 10. That's when he brought on Chad Morris. But he had that stop. Five years at a program like Clemson, even in the mid-2000s when they were not the best team, them and Florida State were still the closest SEC-type programs in the ACC. So it was their five years, tight ends running, game coordinator, OC, and QB coach. He went to Alabama as an analyst. He's been an associate head coach at Colorado State under McIlwain. And then he went to Alabama, 13, 14, 15, 16. And you, Alabama recruits itself. But you still have to go in there and do the work. And it's impressive. From there, he did one stint in 2017 as an OC. And then he's been at Louisiana Lafayette since then. I think he gets the bigger picture. And I think having that much time at those big programs, that's the biggest difference. And people are going to come and say to us, Brian, well, well, Fuente was with Patterson at TCU. What was TCU during the time he was there? What type of program? G5. They might have been an elite G5, but it was a G5 program. TCU was kind of what, you know. Not not quite what Cincy is, maybe what UCF was a few years back. Yeah, but it's still it's different. It's who you're across the field from every week is different. Even with Napier standing in Arizona State out in the Pac-12, it's different across the field. It's more talent than coaching at TCU in the early part of the 2010s. That's my big thing with him. Yeah, and like like I said, the uh, the the thing that where he runs that program like a power five is the thing that really impresses me. And I think that's, that carries over immediately because he's not having to really change a whole lot of his day-to-day operations. He's selling the program like a power five program. He is fundamentally setting up practice and lifting and workouts and all that stuff. Like it's a power five program. Um, He's planning out his month, day and week. Like it's a power five program he's ready to take that step. So the the question is, are, are we going to make a, make an offer for him to do that? And is he going to accept that offer? Because more than likely he's going to have at least 
some of those other programs at our level calling, if not the LSUs and Florida's. It's very, very true. All right. Well, let's flip over. Let's get our 1A. And, Brian, let's go back and forth with the pros and the cons because this is our guy. We actually, again, we, we've we been sitting at the table, and this is our guy. He might not be everybody's one, but he's our one. Yep. Charles Huff, it is the Marshall head coach. And, Brian, let's, let's kind of expunge upon his pros, and then we'll talk about the cons. He grew up in the DMV. Yep, Maryland guy. Maryland guy. So he grew up in it. Yeah, you have a feeling that he understands probably not only Maryland, probably understands Virginia. He grew up in it. Yeah, not only grew up in it, but uh, went to college at Hampton in the 757. Uh, actually, while he was there, uh, <laughs> blocked for the same running back that I blocked for in high school, Alonzo Coleman. Shout out Halifax County Hall of Famer, Alonzo Coleman. Um, in, in Char- Hampton, Charles Huff was a... Charles Huff was a center for uh, Hampton when he was there um, in the early 2000s. That was some of the better Hampton squads as well. I know Alonzo broke some records while he was uh, running back there. So, so Huff was put paving the way for Alonzo to break records down Hampton in the mid 2000s. So, from the seven five seven went to Hampton. I don't think there would be even even coming from the DMV going down in there. I got a feeling he understands the culture down in the seven five and the importance of being a uh, of that area to recruiting. Absolutely. Um, so this is a biggie, and I don't give a damn where he was at. He has always crushed Virginia recruiting and everywhere else, but he's really done a damn good job in Virginia, and especially his time at Penn State. And I know people are going to say, "Well, he was at Penn State." It's once again, he had the program. He still had to sell it. He likely understands everything in the high school. Unlike Justin Fuente, Brian, I got a feeling he could walk into your buddy down at Oscar Smith. I bet he already knows him. Yeah, I bet so. I bet he knows Lauren Johnson. I bet he knows some of the better coaches in Northern. It would not be a... I need to learn what these people do and who they are. It would be, oh, it's Charles. Yeah. It's he knows the, he already knows the lay of the land. Um, he's he's a guy that they were probably familiar with um, from Penn State. He's recruited some from for Alabama when he was down there. He's obviously that's part of his footprint with Marshall now. Um, and the guy the guy can just flat out recruit. Um, I mean you know, we can run down the list of the guys he signed from Virginia while he was at Penn state, but it it speaks for itself. Um, I mean, (laughs) he signed two of the best running backs that, uh, one of the better running backs that Virginia's had in a while. And then he also signed Saquon Barkley while he was there. So (laughs) Barkley and, um, Micah, right? Micah Parsons. Yep. And, uh, Ricky Slade. I know that didn't, that didn't work out the way anybody wanted it to, but kind of didn't. All right. Well, <laughs> let's talk about this next, Brian. Let's let's kind of get away from recruiting and essentially. So, the one reason he's one A, grew up in the area, went to college in the area, has recruited the area, has recruited Virginia. Big. 
He's been an assistant head coach for Nick Saban. Amongst others who have been assistant coaches, I'll give you two names, Mario Cristobal and Kirby Smart. When you're an AHC for Saban, you go far if you're a younger coach. It matters. It does. And, and, and a lot of people say, well, that's just a title. It just means he's second in command. Yes. Nick Saban has tapped you to be his second in command when he's got to go over here on a recruiting trip, but there still needs to be practice that day. Or Nick's got to do this for some reason. You're in charge for the day. That's a lot. Especially Saban ain't exactly completely screwed on up in the head. <laughs> yeah, I, that that's a big one for me. Um and, you know, the other one, he's been at big-time programs since 2014. We already talked about the stops at Penn State and Alabama. You, you definitely glean some of the, you know, tips of the trade, some of the what, what it takes to win at those Power 5 stops by having those type of stops. And, you know, we're, we're seeing already at Marshall with some of the way he's interacting on social media, some of the, the, the public events we've seen. He's a CEO-type coach. He can sell a program. He can sell recruiting to the players. He knows how to make his program shine out in the best way possible. It's very, very true, man. I mean, you see him post. He basically tweets every week who his players of the week are, win or lose. I know I saw a picture of him. He was at some local establishment in Huntington, maybe where he has breakfast or lunch constantly, taking a picture with the owner. And, and you see that and understand. You just feel like he would be that engagement guy. I feel like it's funny. As it, I don't know if he drinks or not. Do you feel like the first week he's there, like he would somehow make it to tots and like yeah. take a picture with the owner having a rail? It, it, he definitely have a rail at tots. And I mean, he just seems like the type of, of coach that players would like to play for, community could be proud of, and donors would be willing to invest in. And I mean, that's, that's the three big things that you re, you really want from your head coach right. uh, before. And then we're talking off the field, obviously wins and losses matter, but they in terms of off the time. field, appeal to the players, appeal to the community, appeal to the donors. Yep. All right. There are some cons. And the first one is the lack of head coach experience. He's only been a head coach one year. Yep. They went seven and four. They're bowl eligible. They got one more game. Um, It'll be I a tough one, but they year. probably should. They're, they're probably favored in that game. I haven't looked at the line yet, but they're probably going to be favored in that game. They are going to be favored in that game. Um, but so you could be eight and four as a head coach in his first year, and and that's um, not a bad program. But they did. I mean, when you completely flip your your coaching staff, that's good. Um, Especially yeah. as good as Doc was there. That's that's where I am. Like when I see it's a lack of, I, I, that sucks. They let go. They just didn't re-sign Doc Holiday. He had a damn good season last year. You imagine walking in and saying, "Go match that." He has. He has. Um, now, obviously, the other one, no P five head coaching experience. There, I think everybody on this list, with the exception of Tom Herman has no P5 coaching experience. No, not head coaching experience. Not and and that's going to be that's going to be hard just because 
our program is not at a point right now where we can, um, I mean, uh, I, sorry, uh, Tom Herman and, uh, Dave Clawson will be the other one. Clawson. Yeah. So I those would be the two. Yeah. It, it, most people do. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> um, the, but I think that's the problem with our program right now is that we're kind of in that middling area where we can't hire the up and coming P five coaches that are, that are making some noise. We're not quite at that level. Those guys are going to the blue bloods. Um, if they've yep. already had success in the power five level, they're getting looks at, you know, now we got LSU open, USC open, Florida open. Uh, you got, uh, Washington open. Um, now the, the upside is that we're likely not in a bunch of competition for whoever gets hired at Washington. We're not in a, we're in a little competition with TCU. Little. Yeah. Um, Florida and LSU are probably going to be targeting whoever our top one or two candidates are. They're also targeting them. They're at least on their list. They may not be at the top of their list, but they are on their list. list. Absolutely. All right. Last piece is he has really no OC or DC coaching experience. He did do some special teams coordinating and run game coordinating goes back to his CEO mantra. Um, and somebody said, is that, could that be good or bad? Well, what type of coach are you looking for? Um, I, th- I think with his connections to big programs and the, the way he's traveled and his regional ties, he would have getting, getting a staff that can handle the OC and DC duties and not necessarily needing a ton of day, day-to-day impact from your head coach on those areas is probably not a big deal. Yeah. So there it is. That is our list. A lot of candidates. Um, I, I, you know, I think something's out by, I think next week we're talking our UVA game wrap and we're talking about the next head coach. I really do. I think it's going to come out whoever it is, regardless of their situation comes out next week, because I think whoever it is, especially if it's one of these guys already coaching somewhere and if they're in a championship game, there is going to be, it's going to be that split duty you see so many teams have at this time of year. We're not going to discuss pickums tonight, guys. We're going to hit that Thursday because we've been almost at it for two hours and it's late. And well, we got some money around on a game up top here. So that is going to wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Visit our website at BoundaryCornerVT.com and listen to all of our episodes. While you're there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. That was a big play by Eckler. Subscribe on YouTube and your favorite podcast source, including Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcasts. We always let Jason Long play us in. He plays us out. Catch him on Spotify and Apple Music. We thank you for listening. And as always, let's go. Hokies. Okay.